The title of today's sermon is Christ's Resurrection, Our Confidence. Christ's Resurrection, Our Confidence. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before Thee. We thank Thee for Thy grace and Thy mercy. O Lord Jesus, we thank Thee for Thy resurrection. We thank Thee for Thy work upon the cross. We thank Thee for loving us and giving thyself for us, for laying down thy life for us, O Lord. We who are sinners and rebel against thee, thou hast laid down thy life for us to make us no longer rebels and enemies with God, but children of God, co-heirs with thee, O Christ. Lord, help us to know something of thy power, of thy mercy, of thy love. Lord, help us now as we open up thy word and preach from it and hear thy word preached, Lord, that thou would apply it to our hearts, that thou wouldst apply it to our hearts, O Lord. Cause it to become a fire within us, that our hearts would burn within us for a passion for the gospel, for, for thee, O God, that we would drink deeply from the river of life, Lord, that we would eat and drink thy flesh and thy blood, O Lord, and that we would know thee as our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, our Father. Lord, be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Christ's resurrection, our confidence. Dear church, today we will contemplate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will contemplate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the central hope of our faith. It is the foundation of our strength, of our religion, of our very being as Christian people. Just as Christ was risen, so too are we, in regeneration, risen from spiritual death unto spiritual life in Christ. Let us now turn to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12 through 23. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 23, the Apostle Paul says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that are slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ is the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. The resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ here being united together as two sides of the same coin, as 
one necessitating the other. That if we are to be risen, Christ must be risen. So on the subject of Christ's resurrection, let us take note of three things today. First, Jesus' Jesus' resurrection foretold. First, Jesus' resurrection foretold. Second, Jesus' resurrection accomplished. And third, the implications of Jesus' resurrection for us. The application. First, Jesus' resurrection foretold. We'll look first at Genesis 3.15. Even directly after the world's fall into sin, Christ's resurrection is foretold. Man had just fallen into sin. The devil deceived Eve, and she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave also to her husband, and he did eat. And now the world has fallen into sin. God now comes and curses both the man and the woman as well as the serpent, the devil. And God tells that ancient serpent of old, even the devil, in Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity, or war, or uh, strife between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman being Christ who was to come, Jesus of Nazareth. The bruising of the woman's seed was Christ's death upon the cross and the bruising of Satan's head, the serpent's head, which represents his power and his strength, was Christ's resurrection from the dead, which confirmed the effectuality of Christ's work upon the cross. This is what's prophesied here. Even directly after the world's fall into sin, Christ's resurrection is put forward. That which wounded Christ destroyed Satan. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell cannot stand up against the assault and the progressing of Christ's kingdom. So even here, in this passage, in the cursings which followed after the fall, Christ's resurrection is foretold. It's obviously not foretold explicitly, but implicitly. Because the bruising of his heel and the, bru- the bruising of Christ's heel was his death upon the cross, and the bruising of the serpent's head was Christ's ultimate victory in his death and his resurrection. So it's implicitly contained in this verse. So just as Christ's resurrection is the confirmation of our salvation, so too it is the confirmation of Satan's perdition, his destruction, his defeat. Remember, Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13.8, we read that. Christ's death and resurrection was always the decree of God. From the very beginning, even from eternity past, Christ was always decreed to triumph over sin and Satan through his death and his resurrection. Next verse we'll look at that Christ's resurrection is foretold in is Psalm 16, verse 10. It's a psalm of David, and this verse says this, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's what David writes. And though the immediate context is a proclamation of David's faith and Jehovah's preserving power over his life, yet these words must certainly be taken as referring to Christ as well. We see that there's a dual fulfillment here, both David's immediate context and also Christ within it. For a time, death did overshadow our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, but only for a time. It was not permanent. It was only for a time that death overshadowed our Redeemer, Christ, but it did indeed overshadow him, yet only for a time. Indeed, Christ feared the cross and its wrath. 
He's in the garden praying, let this cup pass from me, O my father. He, he feared the, the wrath being poured upon him. He, he dreaded it, right? But he knew of his resurrection to come after the death of the cross and that the joy that was set before him and the completion of his people's redemption was worth undertaking. Thus, Christ willingly endured the cross, despising the shame, and now through his resurrection is set down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. So Christ's soul was never intended to remain in hell, or as the Hebrew is, Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, where the dead go. They're no longer on this plane, this realm of the living, but they're in the realm of the dead, which is not some cryptic thing. It means they're either in hell or they're in paradise at Abraham's bosom. So his soul was never intended to remain in hell, but to be reunited with his body forevermore, as we know that it is. And as assuredly as Christ had to die upon the cross for his people's sins, so too he must rise again, conquering death and hell. Revelation 1.18 speaks about this. David, by divine inspiration, knew this, and he proclaimed it long before it ever occurred. This was God's plan all along. He foretold the resurrection of Christ, even from Genesis. Here we see it in the Psalms. This was always God's decree, always God's plan. Next, let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, which says, After two days will he revive us, and in the third day he will rise us up, and we shall live in his sight. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. That's Hosea 6.2. So, again, although this verse in its immediate context is being spoken to the sinful nation of Israel, they'd given themselves over to Baal worship, they'd mixed Baal worship in with the worship of the one true God, Jehovah, and had utterly forsaken the Lord their God in trying to mix and have a pluralistic society, It's being spoken to them directly in the immediate context that they would be brought back out of captivity and would be restored as God's people. That's what it means to raise us up on the third day and we shall live in his sight. Yet this verse also speaks of Jesus Christ, as we know, through typology and and biblical prophecy. Christ is the redeemer of his people. He is the redeemer of his people, both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. He passed over sins done before in his forbearance. And and the justification that comes to all saints, both Old Testament and New Testament saints, by the death of Jesus Christ. So Christ is the Redeemer of all of his people, both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Us, who live and will live after we are dead and gone, and more people believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always be the Redeemer of his people, as he always has, even Adam and Eve, whom he clothed with animal skins. The redemption of Israel in the third day typified and pointed to the greater and true redemption of true Israel by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even to the sinful nation of Israel, the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ's resurrection was proclaimed here. Christians, as we know, are the true Israel. Romans 9.6 talks about that. And like the ancient nation of Israel, we are in our sins. We were in our sins. And Christ, through his resurrection, redeemed us from our captivity to death and sin. Israel was in captivity to Babylon and the Assyrians, but we were in captivity to our sin. He brought us out, the greater exodus, our, our exodus not from Egypt, but from a life of sin and death, a, a deliverance, a resurrection, a redemption, not out of captivity to Babylon or Assyria, but out of our bondage to sin and self and flesh. 
and the guilt of it and the punishment and the penalty of it. He redeemed us and resurrected us and raised us out of that by his own resurrection. Next, let's look at Jonah. Jonah. This is the greatest Old Testament foretelling or prophecy to Christ's resurrection. And it is the very same one that Christ himself used. Jesus himself refers to this. The resurrection of Jonah from the belly of the great fish. This is the type and the shadow that Christ points to, the Old Testament prophecy that Christ points to. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 12, verse 40, he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The narrative of the minor prophet Jonah, we went through that all together at this church, is an amazing illustration of God's mercy, God's love, and God's patience. This minor prophet, strange little story stuck in there that's not really a transcript of sermons like the rest of the minor prophets, but a narrative. This narrative of the minor prophet Jonah really illustrates for us, it magnifies God's mercy, his love, and his patience. But we know that it is we know that it is also typological of Christ. It points to him. Jesus himself says this. He's the greater Jonas. Jonah was sinful, and he was thrown into the ocean and then swallowed by a great fish because of his disobedience. God said to go to Nineveh and to preach the gospel, to preach repentance, and he did not. He fled to Tarshish on a ship, and he was thrown overboard uh, after God revealed to the sailors that he was the cause of the storm he was uh, casting upon the ship. So he was sinful. Thrown into the ocean, swallowed up by a great fish. He remained in the belly of that fish for three days before, before being spat out upon the shore. He was in there three days, three nights. Then he was spat out upon the shore so that he might finally fulfill God's original command to him. Namely, to preach repentance unto the people of Nineveh. He had disobeyed, he'd rebelled, he'd tried to flee from God's presence, from his face, to not fulfill what God had commanded him to do. And he swallowed up in this fish. And after he repents in the belly of the fish, God has the fish spit him back out on the shore that he might fulfill God's original command. So the typology here is that though Christ was without sin and Jonah was sinful, yet just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, Christ says so too his body was to be dead and buried in the earth for three days. Moreover, also, just as Jonah preached to the Gentiles, Nineveh was a Gentilic people, so too Christ's work of redemption is applied to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So he's typified in Jonah here perfectly. He's the greater fulfillment. He's the greater Jonah. Christ is the Savior of all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as Romans 1.16 tells us. So from all of this that we just looked at, the foretelling of Christ's resurrection, dear church, let us learn that Christ's death and Christ's resurrection were not reactionary. God didn't see send Christ, and and now he's being crucified, and he's dead, and he's buried. What do I do? They were not reactionary, but decreed by God from eternity past. Then they were prophesied about in the scriptures, and they were accomplished in time. Let's go to our second point. Second, Jesus's resurrection accomplished. Jesus's resurrection accomplished. So let's notice a few things about this. When? When was Jesus's resurrection accomplished? the third day after his death. This was, according to the Jewish calendar, this three days. Jesus died and was buried on Friday, one day. He was in the grave all day and all night Saturday, two days. And he rose early on the first morning of the week, uh, 
early in the morning on the first day of the week, which is three days. So according to the Jewish calendar, that's three days. But I've often wondered this, and sometimes I still have a hard time answering this question. And people ask me, or I, for a long time, I wondered, why three days? What's the significance of three days? Well, first, resurrection after three days of death proved to Jesus' opponents, the Jews who were coming against them, the unbelieving Jews, it proved to Jesus' opponents that he truly rose from the dead. Why? Well, according to Jewish tradition, a person's soul or spirit remained with their dead body for three days. Uh, After three days, the soul then departed. So if Jesus' resurrection had occurred on the same day or even the next day, it would have been easier for his enemies to argue that he had never truly died. Similarly, we see Jesus do something similar in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. He waited several days after hearing from Lazarus's sisters that he was dead. He, he waited several days before going to Lazarus's tomb and resurrecting him so that no one could deny the miracle. We read about that in John 11, verses 38 through 44. But a second and more important reason that it had to be three days, is that it was to fulfill biblical prophecy. Jesus himself personally claimed that he would be dead three days. And as we saw Hosea specifically, it also was said to be and prophesied to be three days. Paul states that Jesus was, quote, buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians fifteen four. We know that Jesus' mission was not to destroy the scriptures, but to fulfill them. That's Matthew 5, 17, and 18. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, uh, which all either very specifically foretells of him and his deeds and his work, or is couched in types and shadows and points to him in a more concealed way. So that's why. Or when, that's when, three days uh, after his death. How? How was Jesus' resurrection accomplished? By the power of God is the easiest answer. By the power of God, his resurrection was accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of divine power and of Christ's divinity. His resurrection is a triune resurrection, though. The Father raised Jesus. Jesus raised Jesus. And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The scriptures tell us that God hath raised him from the dead in Romans 10:9. So it was a divine act, something that could only be done by divine power and by divine prerogative. It had to be something that God chose to do and that only God could accomplish. No man can raise someone from the dead. No demon can raise someone from the dead. It has to be God's power that raises the dead for he is the author of life. Yet the scriptures also teach us that it was the work of the entire triune God. So when we say God rose Jesus from the dead, Well, we don't just mean the Father. We mean God, the triune God, the Godhead, rose Jesus from the dead. So let's look at each of those in turn, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how they rose Jesus from the dead. The Father is said to be the one who rose Jesus Christ up from the dead. Writing to the church in Galatia, Paul says that he was an apostle, quote, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him, being Christ, from the dead. It's Galatians 1.1. And in Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, he asks God that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, who raised Christ from the dead, would give unto them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, and cause the Ephesians to know what is the hope of his calling 
and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So he, in this prayer, says that it was the Father of glory who raised Christ from the dead. And that we, just as Christ's power, the, the power of the Father in raising Christ from the dead uh, was, was demonstrated, so too it would be demonstrated in the Ephesians. They would know what is the riches of his glory, the power of God that can even raise the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. That's his prayer for them. And so in, in that prayer, we see that he says it's the Father who raises Jesus from the dead. Thus, it was the Father who rose Jesus up from the grave. But Jesus also is said to be the one who raised himself up from the dead. Remember, Jesus prophesied to the unbelieving Jews. He's in a debate with them, and and John chapter 2, after he clears the temple, he makes the whip, and he throws the money changers' tables over and gets all the cattle out of there with the whip. So he prophesies to them after this happens, and he tells them that their very temple, the one he had just cleared, would be destroyed. Afterwards, he begins speaking about his own physical body. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's John 2, verses 19 and 21. So as a man, remember Jesus is, uh, in his person, there's two divine, there's two natures in his one person, one divine nature and one human nature. So Jesus laid down his life as man of his own accord. And as God, Jesus took it up again of his own accord, as it is said in John 10, 18. Thus, it was Jesus who rose himself up for the grave, from the grave. So we just saw that it was the father who rose Jesus up from the grave. Now we are saying that Jesus rose himself up from the grave. Next, the Holy Spirit is said to be the one who rose Jesus Christ from the grave. Paul, writing to the Roman church, stated that all believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them in Romans 8, 9. And for this reason, they are to set their minds on the things of the Spirit, verse 5, and to walk according to his leading, verse 4, because believers have the Spirit of Christ and are no longer their own, verse 9. So this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Paul calls, quote, the Spirit of Christ in verse 9 and says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that, quote, raised up Jesus from the dead. That's verse 11, Romans 8, 11. So thus, it was the Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. So it was the Father that rose Jesus up from the dead. But it was also the Son. Jesus rose himself up from the dead. But now we're saying that it was the Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. So which is it? Well, it's a try and work. Yes, the answer is yes. The Father rose Jesus, Jesus rose Jesus, and the Holy Spirit rose Jesus. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a triune work of the triune God, all the persons of the Godhead. So just as all three persons of the Godhead work out our own our salvation, remember the Father decrees salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to those who believe. So just as it is the work of all three persons in the Godhead for our salvation, so too all three persons of the Godhead are at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this resurrection of Jesus Christ is the confirmation and the seal or the surety of our salvation. So let us see, dear church, the kindness of the triune God in every aspect of our salvation from beginning to end, and including all aspects of what Christ did in his person and work. Last question we'll ask here is why? the accomplishment of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' resurrection accomplished. We asked when, how, and now why. Why? 
why did Jesus accomplish? Why, why, why was Jesus' resurrection accomplished? Well, the answer is for our justification. For our justification. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are justified by grace through faith, just as Abraham was justified by grace through faith. Remember, Abraham's faith being imputed to him for righteousness' sake. He goes on, Paul goes on, to connect this to the work of Christ, this truth about Abraham being justified by faith. He connects this to the work of Christ in us, saying in verses 23 through 25 of Romans 4, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, upon this passage, the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry puts it like this. I don't often just put a quote from somebody to sum up what I'm thinking, but I couldn't have said it better than Matthew Henry here. So here's what he says. He says, quote, Abraham believed the power of God in raising up an Isaac from the dead womb of Sarah. We are to believe the same power exerted in a higher instance, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Isaac was in a figure. The resurrection of Christ was real. Now we are to believe on him that raised up Christ, not only believe his power, that he could do it, but depend upon his grace in raising up Christ as our surety. So not only believe his power, that he could do it, but depend upon his grace in raising up Christ as our surety. So I only believe in hypothetical, just like, you know, Abraham believed that uh, God could open the womb of Sarah for the Isaac that is promised. And even if he were to slay him, uh, when, when God called him to slay him in, in Genesis chapter 22, not only could then God bring back Isaac from the dead and and he trusted in, in Jehovah that way, not only believe that it's possible, but in the resurrection of Christ, we are to believe that he not only could do it, but we are to depend upon the fact that he did do it. His grace in rising up Christ as our surety, meaning our mediator, the one who undertakes for us. Christ was risen from the grave because it is the sign, seal, and confirmation of our salvation. That's the beauty of it. His work was accepted by God, the work of Christ and his death and resurrection. This being demonstrated by his resurrection. We know, we know dear believers, that we are justified because, why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection shows us and tells us and confirms to us that we can know and do know that we are justified. Third, our last point, implications of Jesus' resurrection for us. Implications. What are the implications? What's the application here? Let's look at a few points. First, our salvation is complete and sure. The first implication of Jesus' resurrection for us is that our salvation is complete and sure. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no need to fear. No need to fear if our salvation is truly completed or not. That's the first thing. We have no longer any reason for fear or doubt. Why? Since Christ has truly completed our salvation. That's why. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to doubt Christ's love for us or Christ's work on our behalf. Because he truly completed our salvation. His resurrection demonstrates this, confirms it. While Jesus was on the cross right before he died, 
What were his last words? He uttered these, his last words, in John 19, verse 30. It is finished, he said. It is finished. Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, as you recall, and he spoke to Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? He was doubting. And he said two things of note to his disciples and to Thomas. He said, first, peace be unto you. And secondly, to Thomas, who he commanded this after he told him to stick his hands in the, his side and the, the prints in his hands. He tells Thomas to do this. And then he says the second thing, be not faithless, but believing. That's what he says to Thomas. That's John 20, verses 26 and 27. Christ's resurrection, then, is the sign and seal of our salvation. It, it signs and seals before us that his, our salvation is complete and that we have peace with God. He comes and says, peace unto you. It is finished. Be not faithless, but believing. Romans 5.1 tells us that we have peace with God because we're justified. Being justified, then, therefore, we have peace with God. And it is our impetus to faith. It's our encouragement. It's our power. It's our strength. It's what gets us going and, and putting our faith in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. We can believe and we should believe. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So the answer to our doubt is peace, Christ speaking peace to us and telling us, be not faithless, but believing. Why? Because he's risen from the dead. He stands before us, risen again. Christ's resurrection gives us true certainty, dear church, that we are actually Christ's and he has truly, fully, and really saved us from our sins. That he has redeemed us from the curse, penalty, and power of sin. And this, by his substitutionary death on the cross in our place, and by his subsequent resurrection. In Romans chapter 4, as we saw, the Apostle Paul tells us that Abraham serves as an example for us. He was justified not by works, but by faith, since Abraham's faith was counted unto him for righteousness. It's Romans 4.3. Paul tells us that the fulfillment of Abraham's justification by faith was completed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, who was prophesied to Abraham. As we saw earlier, Paul then gives the application to us who live after Christ's death and resurrection now in the New Testament period. And he says this in Romans, 3, or Romans 4, verses 23 and 24, as we read a moment ago. He says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. But the next verse is key. The next verse is the key, which proclaims to us our grounds for certainty in our salvation by Jesus Christ. It gives us, it proclaims to us why we have a grounding, a foundation, why we have a foundation for certainty in our salvation. Well, he says this in verse 25, who, Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What does this mean? Jesus was delivered up on the cross for our offenses, paying for our sins by his death on the cross, and then was raised from the dead for our justification. Well, this means that Christ's resurrection is God's yea and amen to Christ's work on our behalf. The resurrection of Jesus confirms his work on the cross. Our justification is sure and steadfast and trustworthy because Jesus rose from the dead. There's the key right there. That's the key to our grounding of confidence that we have with God and our salvation. 
We don't have to doubt or wonder or be faithless. We can be faithful and we can be certain and assured of our salvation because Jesus rose from the dead. So what does this all teach us, dear church? That when we doubt the surety of our salvation, when we lack assurance, well, that we are then given a place to look to revive our faith, namely the resurrection of Christ. Just as Moses, as you recall, in the desert was given a brazen serpent, a serpent of brass to lift up when the Israelites were bitten by serpents in the, in the wilderness, they were getting sick and dying, getting bitten by these serpents, and they were sinful and, and disobeying God and murmuring against him. And they murmur to Moses, what shall we do? We're getting bit by these serpents. And God tells Moses, make a brass serpent and hold it up. And whoever looks upon it, who is bitten, shall be healed. So just as Moses was given a brazen serpent to lift up to the Israelites who were bitten by serpents to look upon and be healed, so too Christ is the true healing banner that is lifted up upon which doubting sinners are to look. John 3.14, Jesus Christ himself says, I am that brazen serpent in the wilderness. When Jesus is lifted up from the earth, dear believers, he draws all men to himself. That's why we must lift him up to those around us. And that's why we must see him lifted up, the banner, the brazen serpent upon whom we look and are healed by faith, through faith, by grace, through faith. This is the amazing thing. This is what the resurrection teaches us. So we ought to make a habit out of looking to the risen and exalted Christ, not just on Easter, but every moment of our lives, dear church. Let us see Jesus not only lifted up upon the cross crucified for us and not only risen from the grave and not only upon the earth for 40 days appearing to his disciples. We should see him there. But let us look to where he is now in the heavens, exalted above all things, standing on the right hand of God, standing as a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth, as Revelation 6-5 tells us. Let us see then our Savior Jesus, our great Emmanuel, God with us, interceding for us, who will one day return, our King of kings and our Lord of lords, the one who says to us, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. That's what Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Dear, dear church, such a view of Christ as this will quickly dissipate all the mists of doubt and uncertainty within us as we cry out time and time again, to him who is alive forevermore, risen from the dead. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That will swiftly dissipate all mists of doubt and uncertainty that we have, whether we be Christ or not. Look to the cross, yes, for our redemption, but look to the resurrection for the confirmation that it be so. Another aspect of the implications of Christ's resurrection for us is that if Jesus did not rise, then we are hopeless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are hopeless. The work of Christ, the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation is the sum and substance of our religion, dear church. This work consists of all aspects of his life, of his death and of his resurrection. So we cannot piecemeal or break up into little compartments the work of Jesus Christ and say that one part is more essential than the other. 
for all are necessary. We can't do that. Without his life of perfect righteousness, his death would then therefore be meaningless. Without his substitutionary death on the cross, our sins would not be paid for. And without his resurrection, he could not have been divine or have confirmed the fact that he did live perfectly and die in our stead. But all that being said, knowing that all these pieces are necessary, all aspects of Christ's work are necessary, Christ's resurrection is still the confirmation that all the rest of his work was effectual for our salvation. So without his resurrection, we have no hope and no salvation. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth that if what the false teachers were telling them was true, that there was no resurrection of the dead, quote, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. We read that earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14. So if the dead do not rise, there's no resurrection of the dead like the Sadducees believed, then we shall not rise from the dead. There'll be no resurrection for us. Moreover, if the dead do not rise, then Christ did not rise from the dead, and our entire religion is false. If Christ is not risen and reigning currently, then our faith is vain, or literally, it's empty. We have a vapid, empty, and meaningless faith if Christ is not risen from the dead, dear church. Our entire religion, our entire faith is predicated on the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. If he is not risen, then, Paul goes on to say, then there is no hope even for our Christian brothers and sisters who have died. For they are dead indeed, and shall never live again. That's the end of the story. Paul then states in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. We are miserable, worthy of other men's pity, people feeling bad for us, if it's true that Christ is still dead. Why? Because we're persecuted as Christians, we're killed, we're mocked, we live a life of constant self-denial. What? All for a lie? A deception? If it is true that Christ is still in the tomb, then it's all for a lie. It's all for nothing. And therefore, all people should feel pity for us. We are of all men most miserable if that's the case. Because we have this faith that calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him to not live after the pleasures of this world. But if it's all fake, then... Everyone else has it better than us because they get to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow they die. So it's all for nothing. It's all a waste of time if Christ is not risen. But as Christians, we know by faith and the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit that Christ is truly risen. In times of doubt, when we are feeling pitiful and miserable and without hope, we must look to the truth of Christ's resurrection and be enlivened in our faith once again. We are bondservants of Christ, held captive to his love and the truth of his testimony. We have nowhere to go. We're held captive to him. Thus, we have nowhere else to go. And this is a good thing, not a bad thing, that he's held us captive. For there is nowhere else to go for life and truth and hope and power. In times of doubt, the Christian knows. He knows, even when he's doubting that he can go nowhere else, to no one else. Jesus Christ alone is our hope. Jesus Christ alone is the Christian's hope, the Christian's love, the Christian's bosom friend. So in those times of doubt, the Christian, even somewhere deep inside of him, 
Even when he's doubting, I don't know if I'm God's. I don't know if I care. Even those times of doubt, the Christian hears this prayer welling up within him. Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and I believe and am sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's John 6, verses 68 and 69. Peter says that to Jesus. That wells up within us, even in our moments of doubt. A a, a true Christian cannot apostatize. He can doubt, he can sin, he can, you know, hate his circumstances, but he can never leave God. He's held captive. Dear church, we know that the love of Christ constraineth us, puts us in bonds to continue falling after Jesus Christ. For if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. So we have nowhere else to go and desire nowhere else to go. Another implication is that we are raised with Jesus. Our salvation is worked out. If Christ is risen, then we are risen. And our salvation is progressively being worked out in this life. It's accomplished at the moment of Christ's death and resurrection, yes. But as we believe and we become regenerated by the Holy Spirit, it is then worked out the rest of our lives. Let us remember that Christ's resurrection points us to our resurrection with him, both now in our regeneration and later at that last day. Paul tells us that Christ, quote, died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 and 17. In the mystery that is regeneration, we are risen with Christ, risen to new life in him. We are born again by the mysterious and powerful working of the Holy Ghost. We being effectually called through the hearing of the gospel as it's preached to us, given faith to believe and the power to exercise that faith on Christ. In this, we are risen from our spiritual death with and in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 and John chapter 3. Paul writes that all we who believe are, quote, buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. So since we are risen to a new life in Christ, a new life in Christ as believers, since we are risen to a new life in Christ as believers, we must therefore walk in Christ by the Holy Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. In Christ's death, we are freed from the guilt and penalty of sin. And in Christ's resurrection, we are freed from the power of sin over us. We no longer have to walk in the flesh. We're no longer forced or compelled to walk in the flesh, and that's all that we can do. But we are empowered to walk in the Spirit to the glory of God. This is called sanctification. Christ's resurrection is the key to our sanctification, dear church. It is a battle, but a battle which we did not and could not fight prior to our salvation. It's a battle indeed, but we couldn't even fight it. We did not fight it prior to being saved, prior to being regenerated and born again. We could only obey the flesh previously. But now, because of Christ's resurrection, as Christians, we are given the ability to obey Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
There is never a perfect obedience in this life. This side of death, there is never a perfect obedience. We will continue to sin and to give in to the temptations of the flesh. But now we are at least able to fight. We are able to walk after Christ and not only the flesh. We are risen to life by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, let us walk in the Spirit, since we are those who live in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 This is the hope, dear church, of Christ's resurrection. Nay, the confidence of Christ's resurrection. We are, quote, confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 So God who brought us to life through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, who applies the work of Christ to us, through that, we will continue to work out our salvation in us. The God who began this, regenerating us by the Holy Spirit, will continue to work out that salvation in us on a daily basis through sanctification. And this he will do until the day of Christ Jesus, that day when Christ returns and makes all things new, the day when we shall receive our glorified bodies. For if Christ is risen, we are risen with him. Jesus Christ's resurrection gives us confident hope that we are saved from the guilt, penalty, and power of sin, and that this salvation will continue until our glorification, which is the full completion of our salvation. This dear church, is our empowerment to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our empowerment. Why? How? Because on account of Christ's resurrection from the dead, it is God which worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 13, or 12 and 13. So, dear church, in closing, let us heed the words of the Apostle Paul, who said in Romans 6, 11-13, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let, a, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Christ's resurrection is our hope, our sure and steadfast confirmation that we are saved, that we are Christian, that we are his. Let us therefore live unto him who lived, died, and rose for us, dear church. As he lives, so too should we live. As Christ himself even said in John 11, verses 25 and 26, and also chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus Christ himself said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Because I live, ye shall live also. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we once again come before thee, O God. We ask, Holy Spirit, that thou would apply thy word to our hearts. Lord, that we would live for Thee, our Father who is in heaven. That we would desire Thee. That we would see Thy Christ as our goal. As our chief end is to glorify Thee. To enjoy Thee forevermore. Lord, we thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for rising from the dead for our justification. Holy Spirit, we thank Thee for applying that work of 
the Son to us, and we thank Thee, O Father, for decreeing this and overseeing it, and allowing us to approach Thee through the work of Thy Son, Jesus, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.